Hi and welcome to Terra Tortoise Climate Podcast. Focusing on developing countries, we hope to cover a range of issues relating to climate change, development, sustainability, conservation and many more. Today's guest is Dr. Salim Al-Haq. Dr. Haq is an expert on the links between climate change and sustainable development, particularly from the perspectives of developing countries. He was a lead author of the chapter on adaptation and sustainable development in the third assessment report of the IPCC. In 2007, he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize as a contributor to the fourth assessment report of the IPCC. In the same year, he was also awarded the Bertoni Award for his contribution to capacity building in climate change negotiation of the developing countries. He's also the director of the International Center for Climate Change and Development in Bangladesh. I'm Kirti Manjan and I'll be your host for today. Hi Dr. Hak, thank you so very much for coming on our show. We are very honored to have you with us. I'm going to get started by asking you this. What was your starting point on your climate change journey? Well, I started off after I finished my PhD in the UK. I came back to Bangladesh. I taught in Dhaka University for a few years and then uh, with a bunch of colleagues we set up the country's first environment think tank it was called the Bangladesh Center for Advanced Studies and this is in the middle 80s so we were working on environment issues which were then being emerging as a topic that nobody else was working on and then by the end of the 80s early 90s I got invited to get involved in a couple of international studies on climate change impacts in particular which was emerging as a new topic area in the environment arena and that's my introduction to climate change where as part of these international studies I and a couple of my colleagues we did the initial assessments of sea level rise in the Bangladesh coastal zone and the international study was a number of low lying delta coasts around the world the international partners were looking at the satellite images and we were doing the ground truthing on the ground to look at what the potential 1 meter sea level rise would look like and that actually publication in 1989 is first uh, publication on sea level rise in bangladesh which has been quoted ever since then almost a quarter of bangladesh going underwater with 1 meter sea level rise right Can you tell our listeners about what climate change means in Bangladesh? What are the key issues that your country is being faced with? Sure. So Bangladesh to set the scene is a country of more than 160 million people crammed into less than 150,000 square kilometers giving us a population density of well over 1000 people per square kilometer which is like the city state like Singapore or Hong Kong. and the location is on the delta of two of the biggest rivers in the world the ganges and the brahmaputra which regularly flood through the delta the whole country was created by the delta formation of these two big rivers and so it's a particularly vulnerable country because of its geography and location to floods cyclones coming in from the indian ocean and the bay of bengal and even droughts in part of the country where in the northwestern region of the country where if there's a shortfall in rain then we don't 
get a crop there as well. So it's highly dense, relatively poor population, extremely vulnerable to climatic impacts like floods, droughts, and cyclones, and now sea level rise as well. And hence, in any international ranking of countries that are vulnerable to climate change, Bangladesh is always either one, two, or three, depending on what the criteria are used to do the ranking. Okay. You yourself are the director of the International Center for Climate Change and Development in Dhaka. What kind of role is your organization playing? Can you tell us more about Gobeshona? The center is called the International Center for Climate Change and Development, long name. We call it ICAD for short. It's based at a university called the Independent University Bangladesh. It's a private university. The university is 25 years old now. But my center, the ACAD center, is only 10 years old. We're just celebrating our 10th year. We are a research center in a university, and we support the university to run a master's program in climate change and development, uh, which is now in its eighth year. And so we have a master's program, and we do a lot of short courses and trainings for professionals and others on climate change, and we have a fairly big research program. The Gobeshana platform or initiative, Gobeshana is a Bangla word for research, is something that we set up along with many other universities in Bangladesh that are also doing research on climate change as a platform for the research community writ large in Bangladesh. We have more than 50 institutions, mostly universities, public and private, uh, some research institutes, some international institutions who do research as well. And this is a platform of sharing research findings and particularly enabling research into action by decision makers at the national level, at the sectoral level, at the local level in Bangladesh to tackle the impacts of climate change. Because as I said, Bangladesh is one of the countries most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. But we're not sitting idle. There's a lot happening here in terms of building our resilience and adaptive capacity to deal with the problems. What is the Bangladeshi government's policy about climate change? Please enlighten us on how the government is dealing with this issue. Sure. Climate change is a problem for quite some time now. In fact, Bangladesh government in 2009, so that's well over 10 years ago now, was the first country in the world to set up or develop its own climate change strategy and action plan, which had six different pillars and maybe 40 or so actions, and then they created a climate change trust fund with their own money. Every year, the finance minister would allocate about $100 million in the national budget to implement many of these actions. So over the last 10 years, we have invested about a billion dollars of our own money and funded many hundreds of activities by different actors within government, outside government. And we've gone up a very significant learning curve in terms of what climate change means, what the problems they're going to create, and most importantly, how do we prepare ourselves to cope with those problems? We can't avoid them, but we can minimize their impacts by being much better prepared. And so I would argue that the government and non-governmental actors in Bangladesh, including the research community, which I represent, have been very proactive in trying to understand the problem and going beyond that into what are the solutions to the problem? And Bangladesh, I would say, is playing a quite a significant leadership role in building adaptive capacity of our people and hence uh, making the country more resilient. 
to the impacts of climate change, which are now becoming quite visible. You mentioned a steep learning curve. Can you give us maybe a couple of examples in this regard, if you don't mind? Sure. I mentioned that the government set up a climate change strategy and action plan, incidentally written and prepared by Bangladeshi experts, including myself. We didn't, it wasn't <laughs> a, a donor-funded or an international expert. It was a national exercise and it was adopted by the country. And as I said, the finance minister has been putting a significant amount of resources into implementing it. And so over the last 10 years, we've implemented maybe six or 700 projects across all the ministries in government. And significant amount has also been invested in non-governmental, particularly uh, local level community-based adaptation with NGOs. And all of this has resulted in a significant learning curve of people in the country now understanding not just the problem of climate change, but solutions to the problems of climate change in different sectors. Just to give you one example, in the agriculture sector, our Rice Research Institute has come up with at least half a dozen varieties of uh, saline tolerant varieties of rice, which are now being grown in millions of hectares by millions of farmers in the coastal zone of Bangladesh, as we already see salinity increasing there. And the traditional rice varieties are not surviving anymore, but they're carrying on with these adapted varieties of rice. And there are many other similar actions that are taking place in the country. In the coastal area of Bangladesh, we are seeing significant increase in salinity, both groundwater and surface water is getting saline. A healthy person can drink it. A person like myself who's not used to it, I can actually taste the salt when I drink the water. But right. for particularly pregnant mothers, it's very bad for them. It causes hypertension, which can lead to preeclampsia at childbirth. And so the government and NGOs have instituted a large program of enabling people to capture rainwater, put them in tanks on their roofs and drink rainwater for drinking purposes. They can still use the other water for agriculture purposes, but for drinking, they use rainwater. And, and we're talking millions of households in coastal Bangladesh. Everywhere you go, you'll see people doing that. So as I said, people are learning about the problem, they're learning about solutions to the problem, and they're implementing and adopting solutions to the problem. All of these sound like excellent initiatives. In fact, I happened to read about uh, Bina, which is, I think, the institute that has uh, created this rice. You've also attended every single global negotiation on climate change since 1992. Looking back at over 30 years of negotiations, what do you think has been achieved and what more needs to be done? I'm one of the few people, a handful, I think, of people who've been to all of these negotiations. Incidentally, I didn't go to them as a negotiator because negotiators are government officials. I went as an observer. But I, I do have a role in the negotiations as an advisor to the group of least developed countries, the most vulnerable countries, which includes Bangladesh. And I advise them on negotiations on adaptation and loss and damage. So I have a sort of backseat role in the negotiations. What I would say in terms of the evolution of the problem is that we started off anticipating the problem and trying to work out solutions to prepare for it. And we've had some success, like we had the Paris Agreement, major mm -hmm. success in 2015. But unfortunately, we haven't had the kind of actions that are required to fulfill the pledges and promises we made, which was to keep the temperature to below two degrees and if possible, one and a half degrees. We are headed way above that. And if I can draw a parallel with the current COVID-19 
pandemic around the world, it just reinforces the message that when you get information about upcoming or imminent problem, the earlier you take action, the less impact it will have. It will still have impacts, but they may be manageable. If you keep it too late, then the impacts become unmanageable. And we're seeing that now with the coronavirus or the COVID-19 virus as it spreads around the world. Countries that took early action managed to deal with it. Countries that waited are unfortunately going to have to suffer the impacts. And I, I think climate change is maybe two orders of magnitude bigger problem than the coronavirus is proving to be right now. You've called out climate change as a really much bigger problem than coronavirus itself. I think that's fair. I mean, climate change is an issue and the need to take urgent action is something that's kind of imminent and it's something that needs to be done ASAP. And if a country rallies, then they do suffer the consequences of that, unfortunately. So uh, COP26 happens in Glasgow this year. What are your expectations? I mean, I really hope it does happen this year, given the situation right now. But what are your expectations from it? Well, let me start with COP25 last year in Madrid. Unfortunately, we didn't have a good result there. And first of all, it ran over time for two whole days, which is something that they should never do anymore because it's extremely unfair for the least developed countries and vulnerable countries who can't stay over time. They have to leave when the official time is over. And then decisions get made in their absence, which they were trying to defend while they were there for two weeks. And then once they leave, they're unable to continue to defend them. And then their red lines basically get overridden in the last minute. So it's a deeply unfair process. But even so, the result was no result. We didn't get an agreement in Madrid. And so the opportunity for the UK presidency of COP26, which we hope will be going ahead in November in Glasgow, is even greater to prove that the COPs have any relevance left anymore. Because as I said, over time, it has morphed into catching up with the problem rather than anticipating the problem. Climate change is happening. It's already happening. I would say 2019 to 2020 was the attributable events to fire in Australia, for example. The magnitude was because of climate change. Events are not happening because of climate change, but the magnitude being unprecedentedly bigger is because of climate change. And so we can now say that quite clearly, and we are seeing it. So climate change is now a reality that has to be dealt with. And the COP process, which was an anticipatory, let's agree to do something before we have the problem, is just simply not fit for purpose anymore because we already have the problem and we're not doing anything and we're not even agreeing to fulfill the pledges we made earlier. And so COP26, in my view, is the make or break of our ability to negotiate agreements at a global level. The one thing that the UNFCC had in its favor was it was the only place where you can have global decision-making done with global participation. We don't have a global government. The UN is the closest thing we have. We have an agreement able to achieve, but agreements are only good if you abide by them. And now we have to abide by our agreements. And if we don't abide by them and we bicker and withdraw, like Mr. Trump has withdrawn, then obviously the thing falls apart. It's much, much more difficult to get global action. We can get uh, coalitions of the willing countries that want to work together, do work together. That's a good thing, but it's not good enough. It doesn't solve the problem. It's a global problem. It's another analogy with the COVID-19 
pandemic. You can close your borders, you can stop flights, you can do all those things, but you are not going to stop the virus from coming in. And no country is an island and no country can cut themselves off. And they better realize that quickly and do something about it. You mentioned make or break. What happens if it breaks? Like, what do you see coming if actually things don't go the way they are traditionally or are supposed to go? Well, I think what debilitates the process is that it is a consensus-based process, which means Mm -hmm. that any country that doesn't agree can hold up an agreement. If everybody doesn't agree, then there's no agreement. And that's what we are achieving. That's what happened in COP25 in Madrid. There were three countries in particular, and I'll name them, and, and I won't even name the countries, I'll name the leaders who are responsible. Mr. Trump from the United States, Mr. Bolsonaro from Brazil, and Mr. Scott Morrison from Australia. These three individuals wrecked the UNFCC process. They said, we're not going to agree with everything. We're just going to do whatever we want. And they didn't allow an agreement to be achieved. Now, under those circumstances where there are countries that are not willing to join forces in a global agreement, we have to have a process that doesn't let them hold everybody back. The rest of us have to be able to say, well, if you don't want to join, we're going to go ahead and do something. It's not ideal, but it is a way forward. It's a plan B, which is we form coalitions of the willing. Countries that are willing to go forward, like the European Union and India and China and the least developed countries, we'll go forward. We'll do something. If the U.S. wants to join, fine. If they don't want to join, don't worry. We're going to go ahead without them. But they cannot stop us going ahead. You see, in the COP, they stopped us getting an agreement. We Mm. cannot let them stop us again next time. We have to find a modality of going ahead without them. So moving away from COP, can you unpack the concept of climate finance? What does it mean in terms of the average Bangladeshi who's affected by loss and damage due to climate change? And has Bangladesh, for instance, used funds from the Commonwealth Climate Finance Access Hub? I'm not sure if Bangladesh has accessed funds from the Commonwealth Initiative, but we have got funds from the Green Climate Fund and the Adaptation Fund and uh, bilaterals like DFID and, and UNDP and others. And as I said, Bangladesh has also put in quite a lot of our own money into dealing with the impacts of climate change. From our point of view, what it looks like is being aware of the additional risks that climate change brings to climatic events generally, droughts, floods, uh, sea level rise, etc., and preparing our development interventions to become climate resilient. So what we are trying to achieve is to achieve a development pathway that is a climate resilient development pathway that is informed by the risks of climate change and prepares ourselves to deal with those risks of dealing with the impacts of climate change and over time hopefully be able to minimize the impact. Say we will not be able to eliminate them, they're going to happen anyway, but at least we can minimize the impacts of climate change. And if I can give you an analogy, Bangladesh has been suffering from cyclonic storms which come off the Bay of Bengal every year. And every 10 years or so, we have a really bad one that kills many people. In the last 10 to 20 years, we have a very good early warning system. We can warn and evacuate more than two and a half million people. And in the last few years, we've had some very bad cyclones, but they haven't killed people because our people know what to do. They can track cyclones on their smartphones. They can go to take shelter. The thing about the cyclone is it's quick. It comes and goes. 
So yeah. they need to be in the shelter for just maybe a few hours or a day at most, and then they can go back. The cyclone still does a lot of damage, but it doesn't kill people in Bangladesh anymore. Whereas even in developed countries, they don't have that kind of ability. It still kills people. You know, when Hurricane Nargis hit Myanmar next door to us, killed more than 100,000 people because they weren't prepared. Bangladesh is much, much better prepared. And this is not a climate change preparedness. It's a disaster, general cyclone preparedness. But it's an example of what being prepared does. And I would argue that, you know, again, are pointing to the coronavirus, the East Asian countries, Taiwan, Singapore, and Korea, to a very large extent, was that the people are much better prepared. They listen to their governments, the governments tell them what to do. They all hunker down and they work for the collective good rather than individuals saying, I'm going to do what I like. Same thing in Kerala, if you look at in India, the state of Kerala is way ahead of everybody else. Yeah. All the news seems to suggest that, definitely. What kind of uh, climate change narrative is being presented by the media to ordinary Bangladeshis? And do you think there needs to be change in the way they present this information? Well, I would say in Bangladesh, I sometimes make this assertion that in my view, and I do travel a lot around the world, the people of Bangladesh are the most aware about climate change. In the media, it's constantly being covered. If you ask a person on the street, a rickshaw puller, they will know what climate change is. So that's a good thing. The opposite side of the coin is that we over-attribute everything to climate change. If it's hard, it's climate change. And not everything is climate change, obviously. So yeah. we need to be better at distinguishing what is and what isn't attributable to climate change. But the general knowledge about climate change as a problem is very, very high in Bangladesh. I would say now media are very good at raising this awareness. What they now need to do is improve their own understanding and the nuances of what is and what isn't and when it is and when it isn't, which they don't always get right. Do you think this has actually changed over the last five to 10 years? I mean, was this always the case that the media was excellent at kind of driving this narrative or has that changed because of the way information is now accessed? It's changed. It's changed for the better. It started off in a small way, but it's gone quite big. And as I said, we have well over two dozen television channels. They all cover events, newspapers, radio. They send people to the cops to cover the cops. I made this point at the COP recently in Madrid when we were there. I said, the people of Madrid don't know what's happening here in this event. But people in Bangladesh, too, there are two television, private television channels who send wow. crews to Madrid and are reporting back every day, prime time, giving wow. a live coverage from the COP in Madrid to an audience in Bangladesh. And these are private channels who only do it because they think their viewers want to do it. And the viewers are watching and they're following what's happening in the COP. Not only that, what's happening today? What happened yesterday? What did who said what? That's the level of the general public's ability to follow what a COP is. And I said, people in Madrid don't know what's happening here. That's amazing. I mean, that kind of awareness and knowledge gathering of people itself, I think that's really, really great. I make a big distinction between awareness of a problem, which is very high here, to knowledge of solutions. That's where we're still making progress. And when we make that transition towards solutions, then it becomes disaggregated. It depends on 
who we're talking about. The government has one role, non-government have other role, researchers like myself another role, students in universities have a different role. So it becomes disaggregated as to what does each person in each organization and each location need to do to yeah. deal with the problem. And that's very different. They're not all the same. The problem is all the same. Everybody will get a flood, everybody will get a drought, everybody will get a cyclone. But what we have to do depends on who we are, where we are, and what we know and what our role is. And that's a learning curve. We all need to go up that learning curve. And that's where we are in Bangladesh. We're all going up this particular learning curve in terms of each one of us understanding the problem and then figuring out what is my role in dealing with the problem. So you mentioned people actioning on things. So do you think informed climate activism has become a thing in Bangladesh or was it always there? And do you feel this kind of activism actually has an impact? In my view, a educated, knowledgeable, capacitated citizenry, people, general people, is the best thing that we can have, is the number one ingredient in making not just Bangladesh, but any country deal with the impacts of climate change. People need to know. It's not leaders and presidents and prime ministers who will solve the problem. It's everybody yeah. working together who will solve the problem. And if people are not informed, people are not aware, people are not empowered, they won't do it. And again, you know, drawing the parallel to the pandemic, you see that where people have confidence, work together, collaborate, we can solve the problem. Where they act on their own and disregard instructions and telling them to stay at home, they are the ones who are going to suffer. The consequences of having an empowered nation and citizenry versus a disempowered one in terms of knowledge and ability to act is a huge difference in what the impacts are going to be. And to me, people knowing things, empowering them, they don't have to be rich. They can be still poor, but they know what to do. And that is half the battle. Yeah, that really does make all the difference. So my last question to you is, how do we look at tackling climate change? Sorry, I'm asking you like a, the big question. Are small deeds helpful or should we only look at government policy as the way forward? Is there a, a right solution even? Well, I think one of the big evolutions that has occurred, and I would use the sort of decadal transition from 2020 onwards into the new decade as one of the new phenomena, in my view, also gets reinforced by the current COVID-19 pandemic is that we are global people. You know, the nations are less important than the planet and all seven and a half billion people on the planet on 200 countries. We are part of a global system now. It's inevitable and unavoidable. And once we start thinking as global citizens, then I think that there is a great deal of power in that. There's a lot of solidarity that can be created, particularly by the younger generation. And I take heart by Greta Thunberg's movement of the school kids all over the world coming out every Friday. There's a big group in Bangladesh that they've been doing it for a long time here, but nobody gave them much patta until Greta started it in Sweden and then they joined that bandwagon, which is fine. I have nothing against Greta. She has really mobilized children around the world. But that kind of global solidarity of school children coming out in solidarity with each other, to me, is a hopeful harbinger of potential collaboration across uh, the world that our leaders have failed to do, and they're still failing to do right now. They're like caught in the spotlight. They're stuck. They don't know what to do. Everybody right now has seen what's happened in China, and they're just reacting, reacting, reacting. They're, nobody's being proactive. 
and they will suffer the consequences. Thank you so much, Dr. Haka. We've had a lovely, lovely time talking to you. And thank you so much for your really, really great insights into what's happening in Bangladesh, the true ground reality of what is happening. Thank you very much. You're welcome.